Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Uh, this is, what is this, March 6th, March 9th. Holy cow. How we get to March? Uh, but it was at least warm for a while. We were supposed to have snow on Saturday, so that'll make it exciting. Then it's going to be 70 again on Monday, so welcome to Tennessee. Uh, but anyway, glad to have you here. Glad, glad you guys, I hope you guys are enjoying this, this study. We're going through um, uh, systematic theology, and, and we, we went to Providence, right, last week. And so this week we're, we're going to look at creation, which is really an application of Providence, which is really kind of cool, right? And so um, if, you, if you're new here, we, have, we take questions on uh, Slido.com. So if you've got a phone or a tablet, you can go to Slido.com, and you can either shoot this QR code or you can put in a room number of 996 Two four three, and uh, you can ask questions. You can also go on there and see questions that have been asked and like them, so that they'll go up to the top, and so they'll be more prominent, so we'll know more people are interested in them. Um, and other than that, then we're off next week, right, for spring break, and so it'll be two weeks before we meet in person again. And other than that, is that all our admin stuff? Wow, that's pretty good for me. I didn't forget anything. All right, let's pray and get started. Father God, we are thankful. We're thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, uh, thankful for your word, Father, that we, that we can study it in, in its totality, right? Get the full, full complement of scripture, Father, and look at them on these topics. And so that we are fully informed. It, 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 it's just a beautiful thing, Father, just to watch how your word works. Uh, in these specific applications, Father. So bless us tonight. Open our hearts and our minds to understand your truth and let that truth change us. Don't let us be the same people that walk out, that walked in, because every time we encounter your truth, we should be more like Christ. We should change, and it, it should make a difference. Bless Jay, uh, anoint his words and work in and through him, and uh, let, let us hear what you need us to hear. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian, and welcome. Yeah, appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, last week, we had that little taste of spring, and it teases us as it tends to do, and now it's back to cold weather, but uh, it's all right. Basketball tournament season is here. Any big basketball fans out there? Yeah, so Harold, I'm going to be watching you to see if you're on your phone tonight, so more than you're paying attention. No, I, I, I understand the pull, uh, so good times. Well, tonight, we are looking at the doctrine of creation. Uh, and so a couple of things as we get started. Uh, one is that I know that if we do theology again next time, I've already told Brian this, there's a couple things I'm going to do differently. One is we're going to sing at the end of some of these sessions, right? I just, man, my heart is so full and the topics are so deep and it, it just feels like that would be such a great, great way to respond. Um, but the second thing we're going to do, of course, maybe it won't be March the 9th next time, uh, but is that, I mean, we should be teaching this session on creation outdoors, right? So I want you guys to go ahead and vote, right? Uh, who votes that we go to the beach uh, the next time we teach on creation? Yeah, okay. How about mountains? Anybody? So, yeah. Who just wants to get out of town, right? So, yeah, that's pretty much everybody, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I grew up in southern Illinois, which had neither beach nor mountains. Uh, it was just flat, and I didn't see the ocean until I was 19 years old. Uh, but I think when you start thinking about creation, uh, there's something about standing beside the ocean and just feeling small uh, that is, is in its own way uh, an act of worship. Uh, when you recognize just the handiwork of God and the vastness of who he is and that that's a good experience. But of course, there's also something about experiencing the majesty of mountains. 
um, and a God who is that creative. And, uh, and so the topography of that, his majesty on display um, in the mountains, as many of you know, we like to hike and explore the national parks as a family. And, uh, and so Lord willing, our 25th anniversary is this year. And so uh, we're hoping to, to explore yet another national park, but that's the Grand Tetons. And we were out there a couple of years ago and it was just an absolutely magnificent experience. So, so yes, in the ideal world, we would be outdoors and I would also be a worship leader as well as a pastor uh, and could lead you in song. But uh, as we look at the doctrine of creation, uh, one of my favorite theologians is a cartoonist by the name of Gary Larson. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek because he's the guy who came up with the far side. And he has a pretty twisted sense of humor. Uh, but uh, this is uh, God in creation, right? And so you can see uh, God is there in his kitchen. He's got the earth in a pan. Uh, and he has these jars of different you know, uh, ethnicities on the shelf there. He has birds. Uh, he has insects. He has reptiles. He has a box that says trees. And I know most of you can't read it, but the jar in his hand, the label says jerks. And then the subtitle that goes with this one, it got cut off when I put on here, but it's just to make things interesting, right? Uh, and so just a little fun right there with, uh, with God in his kitchen and creation. But we are going to look tonight uh, at God's creation and everything that he's done. And you know, one of the most interesting perspectives that I, I've received in quite some time came from uh, a Nepali man who was staying with us a couple of years ago. Uh, as you guys know, many of you know, my son is adopted from Nepal. We have mission partners in Nepal. And so we were hosting uh, the um, Alliance for Orphans, the worldwide conference at the Brentwood campus. And so uh, people would come. And this was his first time in the United States, this gentleman. And so we got matched with him since he was Nepali. And so his name was Don Raj. Uh, he runs a ministry called Karuna Care uh, that helps care for um, the least of these in Kathmandu. And uh, it was great because after he was with us and we were sharing with him about church planting, he went back and planted a church and a month later sent me a picture of him baptizing uh, eight Nepalis in an inflatable swimming pool on his front deck, uh, on his front porch. So it was really cool just to see uh, how God's worked in his life and been able to keep a relationship with him. But Don Raj, uh, the week that we were here, because I was his transportation, I just said, hey bud, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to be a strother for a week, you know? And so I'd take him to the conference and back, uh, but in between, soccer practice, Costco, he'd never seen one of those before, right? Just all these experiences. And it was kind of fun because he loved asking questions. And so I got to see our area through the eyes of someone who had never been here before. And so he asked me a question. He would say, Pastor, who goes around and plants all of the grass in your community, right? Because in the Himalayas, there's very little grass, right? And so, you know, we're driving to school. My kids were at New Hope Academy at the time, so we were going up Carter's Creek Pike. And he would turn to me and he would say, Pastor, what kind of animals live in your jungles, <laughs> right? You know, because that's what they have if you go down near the border uh, of Nepal and India. There are jungles there. And so he said, do you have tigers? And I was like, no, but that would make things really interesting, right? Uh, if we did, tigers jumping out at you on Carter's Creek Pike make it kind of a, a more fun. You know, at one point he said, um, do you have a name in your culture for these houses that you have in your community? And I said, no, they're just houses. And he said, we would call them mansions, you know, perspective, right? And so Don Raj went with us to Life Group as well one night. And uh, our Life Group was meeting at uh, John and Renee Cook's house, and they had just done their uh, crawfish fundraiser for Every Girl Counts. Uh, and so John was like, hey, Don Raj, you want to try out a piece of crawfish? And so he did. About 20 minutes later, we're sitting on the couch, and he starts making this funny clicking noise, hissing noise. And he's like, I, I don't feel good, Pastor. And so he went to the restroom. Well, if you think about it, Nepal is landlocked. So they don't have access to shellfish. 
So Don Raj had a shellfish allergy and had a reaction. So I took Don Raj to uh, Williamson ER. Thankfully, they pumped him full of Benadryl and he was okay. But even that experience did not dampen his enthusiasm. He'd hand me, he'd hand me his phone every five minutes. Pastor, take picture of me in American emergency room, right? <laughs> he was like, hey, put on those awful hospital gowns. Take picture of me, just like the movies, in American hospital. Yeah, I mean, it was just nothing could dampen this guy's enthusiasm. It was absolutely amazing to see. And that perspective, that freshness was just encouraging to me. And you think about the way that we handle God's creation, that every day the sun rises and sets and we barely even notice. Every day, babies are born, and we're watching our kids grow up, and yet it just passes us by, right? Every day, there are these wonders of God's creation that he's put all around us, but often we miss it because we don't slow down long enough to pay attention to his fingerprints and his handiwork that's all around us. And so I I pray that tonight, as we work through this, and we'll get into some of the big questions people have about creation and all of that, but I hope that that's where we put the emphasis, right, is to be in awe of what our God has done as creator. And the temptation, of course, for us mankind is to always worship the created, but instead I hope that this is an opportunity for us to recalibrate our minds and our hearts so that we look at what God has created, but it leads us to worship the creator. And so the doctrine of creation states that God created the entire universe out of nothing. We'll talk about that in a moment, right? He created it all out of nothing. It was originally, right before sin, very good, and he created it for one purpose, to glorify himself. We need to remember that, right? All creation exists for the very glory of God. So let's break this down a little bit, uh, and we're gonna walk tonight from the things that are abundantly clear in scripture, right, to some of the things that we grapple with, some of the things that we have questions with. And I know that's the part that you guys are really excited to get to, uh, but, but we need to put the emphasis where the Bible does, and that's an important part of theology. Uh, is recognizing that sometimes we do get sidetracked and sometimes there's rabbits that are worth chasing. Uh, But we want to be sure we put the emphasis where Scripture does itself, and that's on these truths. So number one, God created the universe out of nothing. It's often referred to as creation ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase, of course, just from nothing. Before God began to create the universe, nothing existed except God himself. We all know Genesis 1.1. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But Genesis, or, uh, Psalm 33, uh, verse 6, uh, verses 6 through 9. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. We were talking about this picture just a second ago, right? The oceans. The psalmist says for God, right? It's just like he's raking leaves. He just piles them up in a heap, right? And for us, that's absolutely an overwhelming thought. Uh, And of course, God is infinitely big, but just those attempts to help us to understand through human eyes, the psalmist is, just the greatness and the vastness of God. We've been in John chapter one, verse three, that reminds us all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So God created it all. Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17 goes on to say he is before all things and by him all things hold together. So what an important principle for us to know, because naturally, things do what? 
they fall apart. I'm 46 years old, right? Starting to fall apart. Cars, they get old, they fall apart. Houses, they get old, they fall apart. But, but God, by the power that he has, holds all things together. And then Hebrews 11:3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. That whole incredible section in Hebrews 11 about faith, right? It's even by faith. Why? Because we can't go back and see it ourselves. And so we trust the authority of God's word. We trust his revelation, his written revelation that talks to us about his general revelation, uh, which is what we call creation. Uh, And so because God created the universe, there is no matter in the universe that is eternal, which should remind us that nothing in creation is to be worshipped instead of God or in addition to him. As I mentioned earlier, that is a problem we have as mankind. As John Calvin, the reformer, said, the human heart is an idol factory, and we will take good things and try to make them into ultimate things. And so the things that God has put in this world are things that are designed, if we follow the trail, to lead us back to him. But often we make those things ultimate things, and we are tempted to worship them instead of him. Creation includes the creation of the unseen spiritual realm of existence. Nehemiah 9.6 speaks to this. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. And so, when was heaven created? Well, it was created just the way the rest of this world was, right? At the word, at the decree of God. God created, we know, Adam and Eve, specifically when we talk about humanity, in a special, personal way. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 recounts that. Genesis 1, as we've talked about before, is kind of the wide-angle lens. Genesis 2, the more specific, focused on the creation of Adam and Eve. And we know that mankind is created in God's image, the imago dei, the pinnacle of God's creation. So that sets us apart from from other created things. All things are created by God and have value to him, but people are unique in that they bear his image. As a matter of fact, that term in Hebrew in the ancient times was one who is representative of a king. Uh, That's what that word means, that we are literally images, right? Just like kings would go around and set up images of themselves in the lands they had conquered. They'd set up a statue or something to remind the people that they were in charge. That's the same image that we bear. And so as we go out into the world, right, we are God's image bearers carrying that image with us. God created time, but he is not bound by it. So that's one thing sometimes we don't think about, right? When we think about creation, God created time, but he is not limited by it. Job 36, 26, yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity. In the Hebrew, that means from vanishing point to vanishing point. God has no start and he has no end. You are God. It's important for us to remember that because God isn't bound to space and time like we are. The best illustration I've ever heard used to describe this is if you imagine a ruler and you have you know, all of those fixed points on a ruler and that would represent a timeline, if you were holding that ruler like this, that's the way God is. <laughs> he holds time in his hands. He's everywhere on that continuum and spectrum at the same time, which is mind-boggling to us. Absolutely, right? Just is unbelievable to think about, but that's the way that God exists. 
He functions outside of time, and yet he created time for us. Second Peter 3, 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And so just that reminder, you know, it's just trying to help our human finite minds get our head around the eternity of God. So it's interesting, right, when the Bible says Jesus is going to return soon, and people are like, well, pff, it's been 2,000 years. He's never coming back. Well, pff, to him, it's a couple of days. Ever thought about it that way before? <laughs> so time is, is in his hands. He is outside of time. And then, of course, Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and Omega, uh, says the Lord God, the one, who the one who is, the one who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so God the Father, we looked at the Trinity a couple of weeks ago, was the primary agent, the Bible tells us, in initiating creation. The Son was the active agent in carrying out the plans of the Father. John 1 again, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Hebrews 1, 2 says this, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And so we know that the Son carried out the plans of the Father, and the Spirit has a preserving, sustaining, and governing function over creation. Job 33, Psalm 104. So know that. The Bible has evidence of the Trinity, right? The fullness of the Godhead is engaged in creation. Uh, and so it is amazing to think about the greatness and vastness of God. Number two, creation is distinct from God and yet always dependent on God. Creation is distinct from God and yet is always dependent on God. This is unique among world religions. The Bible teaches God as both far above his creation, so he is what we would call transcendent, and yet at the same time, he is very much involved in his creation, which we call his eminence. And you think about Jesus, right? Fully man, fully God. So fully transcendent and yet fully imminent at the same time. There is no other belief system worldview in the world that holds to that same understanding. They either swing one way or the other, but as Christians, we hold to both because of the theory of the, and the doctrine of the incarnation. Job 12.10 says this about the imminence of God. The life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all humanity. Think about that, how many living organisms there are in this world. And Job declares, right, the life of every living thing is in his hand. Acts 17, 25 through 28. This is Paul on Mars Hill. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And so what a statement right there Paul is giving in that sermon at Mars Hill about the imminence and the transcendence of God. Colossians talks about it. We read that. Hebrews 1, we already read that. Ephesians 4 talks about that, the oneness of God. And of course, this differs from other views of the universe. And that's one thing we have to recognize because those different views of the universe are around us all of the time. Uh, I'm gonna try to use this as a digital whiteboard tonight. So the biblical view that we have of how this works, right, is if we imagine this is the sphere of God, right, and this is the sphere of his creation. So God is always above it, and yet, right, he consistently interacts with it. 
And so that's our understanding of how God works in creation. Other views, of course, the materialistic view would view that, well, this bottom circle, right, it's all that there is. That's the materialistic worldview of most people, and that's their default in our world. Well, this life, this stuff, this is all there is. There's nothing outside of it. So live for the moment, gain all the stuff you can. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? Because this world is all that there is. That's materialism. Pantheism goes the other direction. It declares that everything is God. And so that chair's God, that paper you're holding's God, right? Just everything is God. And then panentheism is its closely related cousin, which basically says, well, God is just in all of these things. So that chair isn't God, but God is in the chair. And I know that sounds silly to us, but yet there's a whole lot of belief systems, especially from the Eastern world, Eastern hemisphere, that believe in that kind of thinking. And then you have what I call Star Wars theology, right? Dualism. The idea that you've got God on this track and you have the world on this track. And so they are dualistic powers. And of course, right, you've got the idea of good and evil, right? Karma, yin and yang, the light and the dark side of the force balancing each other out kind of thing. That's one worldview that is prevalent as well. And then, of course, you have deism, by which you have God in his own sphere, creation in its own sphere, and the two don't ever touch. God kind of set the world right to work, but he doesn't interact with it on a regular basis. Now, most of us in this room, right, we look at those varying views and we're like, oh, we get it, right? God is transcendent and imminent. Like God, that, that's what we would believe. But the reality is a lot of people in our churches today are what I would call functional deists. They believe that God exists, but they don't act in their everyday lives like he does. There's very little time spent with him, very little recognition of his ways, right? Very little pursuit of the things of God. Or they are functional materialists, right? So we go to church, we do our thing, right? We go through our religious motions, but what we are living for is the moment that we're in. And so we live just like the rest of the world, pursuing all of the things materialistically. So you see all of those different variations, but it's important for us to understand that this is the biblical worldview, right? That God is above, right? And that his creation is below him, but he is faithfully always interacting with his created order. Which means, number three, God created the universe to show his glory. All of creation, including mankind, is to designed to demonstrate God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them, indeed I have made them. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. And then Jeremiah 10, 12. He made the earth by his power. He established the world by his wisdom and spread out the heavens by his understanding. God did all of this not because he needed to. He doesn't need us. He didn't need the world to feel good about himself, okay? God didn't need something to do. He didn't need a project. Some of us are like that, right? My wife will tell you, if I'm sitting around the house too long, I need something to do. It's just the way I'm hardwired, right? But the reality is, is God doesn't need us. Instead, he chose to create our world. He chose to create us. Remember what it said in Revelation 4.11, our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. 
So God takes delight in his creation, and he made us to even reflect his creative power by our own creativity. Now, we'll talk about how our creativity reflects God, but is not exactly the same as God's in just a moment when we get into the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1. But remember that. When we create, when we use the creative abilities God has given us in whatever format that plays itself out, we're bearing his image. It's one of the cool things that we get to do as God's people. Number four, the universe God created was very good. Even though there's now sin in the world, material creation is still good in God's sight. Genesis 1.31, he looked at all that he had made and said it was not just good, but it was very good. And that's part of the reason that God is going to redeem his creation in the end. You know that, right? It's not gonna all burn, right? It's gonna be refined as passed through fire, but Revelation teaches us, right, that God is going to redeem his creation. He's not going to discard it. Instead, it was good from the beginning. It may be marred by sin. It will be refined, and it will be a part of his eternal plan for us, his people, as he redeems the heavens and the earth. We shouldn't be ascetics who don't enjoy or appreciate the good gifts of the created world. So one thing we have to recognize as Christians, right, there's a ditch we can fall into on either side of the, the road. One is to be all about materialism, like the world, which clearly is not biblical. But the other is you've got some people who try to deny, right, anything good, and we're, if we're good Baptists in this room, right, we're kind of that way, right? Well, things can't be that good, right? Something bad's gonna happen. So the, the reality is, is God created a good world for us to enjoy. First Timothy 4, one through five. Now the Spirit explicitly says, Paul's strong on this, by the way. Listen to that. The Spirit explicitly says that in the later time, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. And of course, there's a whole sermon in that, right? But what Paul is saying is there's some who will deny the goodness of God's creation. And Paul says instead, you know that steak? Enjoy that steak because God allowed you to eat it. Can I get an amen, right? So like the, he's saying, enjoy what I've given to you. And so you don't have to be like a, a, an ascetic where you live like a, a monk and you deny every form of earthly pleasure, right? The key is, is that you don't get caught up in earthly pleasures, but instead you see those as good gifts from God that point to his provision, that point to his grace for you, that point to his creative power to make a steak taste so good when you eat it. Like God didn't have to do that, but he did right? And a steak's not your thing, okay? Sorry, right? If you're not a red meat eater, whatever your, your favorite thing is, chocolate cake, right? Ice cream, whatever it is. God created your taste buds to explode when that food hits your mouth in such a way, right? That that is evidence of his goodness. Yet at the same time, of course, we don't go into the ditch on the other side of the road. We recognize that we're not materialists either because material possessions are only temporary. So just a couple chapters later, Paul tells his protege Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 17, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh, that word contentment, you might wanna write it down on your page because we have a world that is designed to lead us to be anything but content. It's what marketing is designed to do to see something that somebody else has so that you want it instead of saying, this is what God has provided for me and it's good. 
right? That's what contentment is. For we brought nothing into the world, Paul says, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And you think about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, right? Who would just love to be able to have food and clothing, right? Basic provisions. And you realize how blessed we are, right? Perspective. But those who want to be rich, they fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, by the way, okay? It's not money is the root of all evil. It's the money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so not denying the power of money, right? But we also have to keep it in its place. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us all with things to enjoy. You see, there it is. He brought it back around, right? That our hope is in God who provides us things that we can enjoy. So instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Because when we're about material possessions, when those become our idols or our God, those gods cannot give anything back to us. They only take. I can't tell you the countless people I've talked to have said, if I just had a certain kind of vehicle, if I just had the boat, if I just had the bigger house, if I just had these things, I would be happy. And then they get those things and do you know what happens? They're miserable because their insurance goes up because they require a lot more work, a lot more cleaning, a lot more time. They gotta work an extra job to pay off the extra bill. You know, all of a sudden, that thing that we thought would give us life, that material possession doesn't. It takes life from us. God is the only one who can give. And so, yes, he gives us things to appreciate and enjoy, but those things, again, should lead us back to him. And so, our hope is in God and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We don't put our hope in stuff. We appreciate the stuff that God entrusts us with, the things that we can steward in his name. But we recognize that our hope is in God and in him alone and in a kingdom that cannot be shaken because the stock market could collapse tomorrow. Your house could burn down tonight. That vehicle that you finally paid off, right, could run off the road and into a ditch and be totaled. All of those things, right, could just, material things can be gone in an instant. But our hope in God is, will never fail. And then number five, uh, as we get into this tonight, as we begin to continue to discuss creation, it's important to rightly understand the relationship between Scripture and science. Grudem says this in a systematic theology, pronouncements by scientists about creation and the early history of the earth are at best educated speculation. If we are convinced that the only observer of these events, God himself, has told us about them in the reliable words of the Bible, then we should pay careful attention to the biblical account. So as we dive into some of the rest of the stuff about creation, and some of the, you know, beyond just the why, but the when and the how and all those things, we need to remember that. So a few things, uh, points to make on that subject, because this is where, especially in the church, we begin to see people who agree to disagree uh, about creation. First of all, know this, there is no conflict between Christianity and true science, science itself. This is because the Christian worldview, which believes that God created the world with its natural laws and orderliness, Brian talked about this last week, is what undergirds the entire scientific enterprise. Translation, scientific method is based on the assumption of regularity in creation. 
because God established certain laws to always be in operation in our rule in, in our world by his creative hand and under his authoritative rule it means that when scientists measure something they can be assured that gravity is going to act like gravity tomorrow just as it does today well behind all of that is a God who does what holds all things together so you can't even have science without consistency but however, second bullet point, there is total conflict between Christianity and what I would call scientific naturalism or scientism, right? Which is belief in science as a faith. And believe me, there are many people in our culture who their God is science. And so they will pledge allegiance, right, to science all day long. So naturalism is the belief that all phenomena can be explained in terms of presently operating causes and laws. When natural science is the arbitrator of all truth claims, religion becomes superstition and God is omitted from the discussion. So that, that is an issue. But we need to remember that the Bible in general, and Genesis in particular, was not written with the intention of being a scientific textbook. Does it contain accurate science? 100% yes. But the emphasis of the Bible is on God and his relationship with humanity. So God lets us know everything we need to know about him, his creative power, his ways. Why? So that we can understand him as he has revealed himself, so that we can have a relationship with him. So Genesis is far more concerned with the questions of who made creation and why he made creation than exactly questions that we want to know, like when he did. And so if you think about it, we've got just two chapters at the very beginning of the Bible that deal with in just a few verses, right, all of creation. Now, again, all of Scripture bears testimony to that creation, but in the very ways that we just described. And so we need to recognize that reality. When, while Bible, uh, biblical authority is a closed-handed issue and not up for debate, right? We've already covered the authority of Scripture, right? So it is authoritative. One's view of things like the date of creation should not be the litmus test for Christian faithfulness. Christians receive what the Bible teaches as truth from God to be believed and obeyed regarding creation. Anyone who claims to be a Bible-believing Christian, I think you have to reject some theories, such as the atheistic evolutionist claim that there is no God and that creation is not a gift, but whether this just epic, purposeless accident. We'll talk about that more. But Bible-believing Christians can and do disagree over open-handed uh, issues, such as exactly how God made the heavens and the earth, whether the six days of Genesis 1 and 2 are literal 24-hour days and the age of the earth. So you can believe in the Bible, right? And you can agree to disagree about some of these issues. It's not a litmus test for faithfulness. Our authority, though, is Scripture. So we know we can't embrace anything that's not consistent with Scripture. That's what we have to go back to time and time again. So with that being said, I want to spend a minute on Genesis 1 and 2. Because it's important that we unpack those carefully because they set the stage for everything else that's to come in the conversation about creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we believe, it's likely Moses, right, who wrote the book of Genesis. And so he wrote it probably around 1400 BC. Meaning, he was not there in person to witness creation. So I know there are jokes that go around every church, right, about people who were so old that they were there, right, when God created the earth. Uh, and I'm getting there. My kids think that I'm that old guy now, right? Uh, but the reality is, is he wasn't there. Instead, he was inspired by the Spirit to write down the account exactly the way God wanted him to. And let's be honest, it is a theologically selective retelling of creation. It omits lots of things 
that I personally would like to know, right? Hey, what about the dinosaurs, Moses, right? Hey, tell me about, hey, somebody asked the question, when was hell created, right? Hey, tell me about that, right? Give me the timeline of the angels and when Satan fell and can you put all that together for me because that's the way my mind works and that's what I want. But that's not what we get in Genesis 1 and 2. Instead, we get exactly what God wants us to get and we have to remember that. So the word for created in Hebrew is the word barah which means created from nothing, or ex nihilo, as we said. The other Hebrew word used in a creative sense is asa. It's translated make or made, which means to fashion or shape, or to make something suitable, right? We see that in Genesis 3, 7, when Adam and Eve make fig leaf outfits, which my Middle Eastern friends will tell you is the Middle Eastern equivalent of poison ivy. So I just want you to think about that. What an unpleasant experience that was for our first parents way back then. The message was what? You can't hide your sin properly, right? You try to do it and you'll be miserable. Even in that, right, is a lesson for us. Even in that is a truth. So these kind of places, when Moses made the ark in Genesis 8, right, he's fashioning, right, the wood that was already there that God had provided. So what's interesting is, is we need to remember this. When we create, we are doing asa, not barah. Only God does barah. Only he can create from nothing. So we do bear his image as creative beings. We have the ability to create, but we don't do it the way that God did it, right? He created, and now we get to take the stuff that he created, and we get to make things out of it. We get to use our minds, use our hands and our feet, right? We get to use what God has entrusted to us in order to bear his image in creation. What's interesting is, when we begin to think about this, in the beginning, Right In the last few decades, an undeniable evidence has forced the natural sciences to reluctantly agree with what Scripture has always taught, that the universe had a beginning. And so for years, right, for the last hundred years or so, astronomers, scientists, they all believed that the universe was in what was called a solid state. And so that meant that the universe itself was eternal. But what they discovered was that's actually not the case. The universe is doing what? It's expanding. That means it had a set point at the beginning and ever since the moment of the beginning, it has been expanding. And so this has blown the minds, right, of people like Stephen Hawking and others who have applied themselves to it. And yet, right, some of them are all the way home in regards to their thinking. And I love this quote. I love it so much I put it in your notes because I wanted you to have it. There's a guy named Robert Jastrow who is the founder of NASA's Goodard Space Institute for, uh, Institute for Space Studies. And he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And this is his conclusion. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, scientism, as I was talking about a moment ago, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer its highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Saying, in the beginning, right? There it is. And so I love that. Uh, it, 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 once and again, you know, as we continue to discover more about the universe, we see how it correlates with God's word. And then that leads us, of course, to Genesis 1-2, which says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Now in 1-1, the heavens and the earth can literally be translated in the Hebrew, right? The skies and the land. 1-2 tells us that they are formless and empty before God prepared them for humans, now, we have to think about this because we have to be sure again that we're going back to what scripture says. Western thinking was heavily influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. 
part of that Greek thought, Plato, Aristotle, right, all of these guys, all of these philosophers, the Greek cosmology taught that what originally existed was essentially a formless hunk of mud from which God formed, right, from chaos into cosmos was the famous saying. This ideology led to a great deal of sway in a lot of the early Christian interpretations of the Old Testament. So this language, right, formless and empty, is actually used in the Hebrew elsewhere in the Bible to describe uninhabited land, desert-like land. So formless and empty doesn't mean chaos, but it means it's simply empty of humans. Therefore, the best interpretation, we talked about biblical interpretation a few weeks ago, is not that God created this primordial chaos and then formed the earth out of it, but God created everything out of nothing and that the land existed for some unstated period of time in a desert-like empty state. The dawn of God's light in Genesis 1-3 signals the arrival of his blessing. And then God, of course, took, I believe, six literal days to prepare the land for human habitation as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. And so it's fascinating when you begin to be able to put all of this together, how God created. Uh, one uh, seminary professor, Gary Brashear, says, The creation of heavens and earth in the first verse is a concrete historical scientific fact. But the text simply does not tell us when it happened, only that it was sometime before the preparation of the land for humans to dwell with God. In the beginning means there was an inauguration, but not when that moment was. And so we need to remember that. Francis Schaeffer, a famous evangelical author, right, wrote a book called No Final Conflict. And he says this, when we begin to think about the when, we can approach both scientific and biblical study with the confidence that when all the facts are correctly understood, and when we have understood scripture rightly, our findings will never be in conflict with each other. There will be no final conflict. This is because God, who speaks in scripture, knows all facts, and he has not spoken in a way which would contradict any true fact about the universe. So in simple terms, that means God's special revelation of scripture and his general revelation in creation agree with one another. And in the end, right, that's what matters. And so for us, we explore both of those things, God's word and his creation, right, in science and in reason and trying to figure it all out, right, knowing that those things harmonize, that they converge because God is God. And he won't speak against himself or what he's created. And so he lists, for instance, in this book, seven possibilities. He doesn't say that, I know that these are right. These can explain, you know, how we harmonize the facts that we seem to get from science with what the Bible says. He's just saying these are possibilities. For example, number one, God created a grown-up universe, a universe that already had the appearance of age. Number two, there's some kind of a break between Genesis 1 and 2 or verses 2 and 3. He talks about the potential of a long day in Genesis chapter 1. That the flood, we'll talk about that more, affected the geological data. That the use of the word kinds, as in the kinds of animals, may be quite broad. Uh, He talks about the death of animals before the fall. And then where the Hebrew word bara is not used, there's the possibility of sequence from previously existing things. So I know at this point you're like, whoa, that's a lot, right? It's because... The amount of energy and effort put into people trying to figure this stuff out is legion. It is epic, just skimming the surface. But what I want you to hear is the fact is is that Bible-believing Christians can look at God's word, look at what he has revealed in the created world around us, and that they are attempting to harmonize the two, and they try to do so faithfully. And sometimes we come to different conclusions and opinions. So this is not an issue, right, that's salvific. 
What's important is, is that we hold to the fact that God is the creator and God is the one who has created all things for his plan and purpose. And we know that his natural revelation and his special revelation, that those things both give testimony to him. So that being said, here are the six broad views of creation, because this is honestly what most people come to me as pastor and they're like, which one is it? Like, how does this work? I've heard all these different theories. I'm gonna lay them out for you, right? Again, and there's shades of different ones that are out there, but these are the six broad categories. Number one, historic creationism. The word used for the beginning in Genesis 1-1 is the word rishi in Hebrew, which marks a starting point for what comes after, as we were just talking about. It does not connotate any specific length of time. What created in the first verse existed for an undefined period of time could have been a moment, could have been billions of years before God began to prepare the uninhabitable land for mankind to use. The preparation of uncultivated land in the creation of Adam and Eve occurred in the six literal 24 hours of Genesis 1 as echoed in Exodus chapter 20. This view leaves open the possibility of an old earth, six literal days of creation, and a young humanity on an old earth, which is fascinating because if you begin to do the math, right, and there were monks who used to do this, try to date, like, how old exactly are Adam and Eve, you know, and they came up with something about, you know, that's about 6,000-ish years ago, but then if you read the genealogies carefully in Scripture, you will recognize there are some gaps in those genealogies because, again, they were concerned with bloodlines more than they were with dates like we are, and so even the most ardent anti-Christian scientists will now tell you that homo sapiens, right, emerged around the time of 10,000 years ago. And so 6,000, 10, like we're in the ballpark there again. And so this idea that like right, science and Christianity are odds with each other, when you really begin to examine the facts closely, you begin to realize even the most hardened secular atheist will come to honest conclusions that actually line up really, really closely with what the Bible has to say. It's pretty fascinating when you think about it. The second position that's held is young earth creationism. God created the entire universe in six literal 24 days, making the earth less than 10,000 years old. While this theory seeks to be faithful to the biblical text, it does face some difficulties, such as the creation of the sun and the moon on day four, and while there is evening and morning on the first three days. And so usually that's harmonized with what we'll see down here when we get to number four. Number three, the gap theory. In this view, there are actually two creations. Genesis 1-1 explains a first creation that happened maybe even billions of years ago, then a catastrophic event, likely, they theorized, the fall of Satan from heaven, left the earth in the destroyed condition of Genesis 1-2. So God responded by recreating the earth again in six literal days and then repopulating the earth. Of course, the challenge of this is the Bible doesn't really indicate two separate creation stories, and at the end of the six days of creation, God declared all that he had made very good, which would be hard to reconcile with the claim that the earth had been made very bad by the fall and destruction right, of the earth by Satan. The number four is the literary framework view. In this view, Genesis 1 and 2 are intended to be read as figurative frameworks explaining creation in a topical, not a sequential order. So days one, two, and three are the metaphorical forming of creation, while days four, five, and six are the filling of creation. While Genesis one and two certainly includes poetic Hebrew, even when the Bible uses figurative language, it does so to communicate a literal truth, a fact that I believe weakens this view. But the previous generation of pastors, to me, most of them came through seminary being taught the literary framework uh, view of scripture. 
So if you grew up in a mainline church, if you grew up in a lot of churches where your pastors were trained in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was the view that was the most popular. Throughout history, if you're just curious, the first one, historic creationism, hence its name, right, has been the view that was held from pretty much Augustine on forward until very recent times uh, when the young earth creationists uh, have, uh, have gained popularity and traction as well. And then you have number five, the day-age view. In this view, God created the universe in six sequential periods of time that are geological ages, not literal 24-hour days. Of course, the greatest challenge to this is that the six days can't possibly be in the same order as older science claims since the sun wouldn't appear until the fourth age. It's pretty hard to have ages, right, like millions of years if the sun doesn't show up uh, until the fourth epoch or the fourth age uh, of how of all that works together. And then, number six, you have theistic evolution. In this view, God began creation and then pulled back and allowed the natural process of evolution to take place. God only inserts himself directly again in the making of the human spirit. This theory, in my opinion, inherits all of the scientific impossibilities of evolution, fails to recognize the biblical teaching that each species had offspring according to its own kind, and that the rest of scripture portrays God as personally and continually engaged with his creation. Uh, I am not uh, this uh, harsh, but there's a theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff who says, theistic evolution is really a child of embarrassment, which calls God in at periodic intervals to help nature over the chasms that yawn at her feet. It's neither the biblical doctrine of creation nor even a consistent theory of evolution. So it kind of tries to dance on the line of both, but his argument is uh, that it does neither of those things well. Uh, there's a book that I recommend called Darwin on Trial. If you really want to take a hard look at evolution, it was written by a lawyer who's used to breaking down arguments. It was written over 20 years ago. There's a new edition of it out now. Uh, it's, it's pretty much the, the, the best thing you could read uh, on this subject. For example, let me just give you a couple of his arguments really quick, just because I nerd out on this stuff, right? Number one, life, where did it come from, right? If evolution took place, where was the divine spark that started life? How could it just come from nothing? The odds, and Brian's the mathematician, I'm not, but the way he explains the odds after going through a bunch of math equations that I don't understand in the book is this. The odds are the same as a tornado blowing through a junkyard and building a functional 747 jet. That's the odds, that life would purely spontaneously arrive from nothing, that the first cell would have life. Like, how, how can you explain that? Where did it come from, right? Even if you believe in kind of evolution the way many of us were taught in a school, you still have to say, when did it start? When did that first microorganism come to life? How did that happen? The odds of that happening at chance in the universe are infinitesimally small. The second thing, of course, is the fossil record. <laughs> there are huge gaps in the fossil record. Darwin himself thought the more we dig, the more we're gonna find some of these transitionary species in the fossil record. They've never been found. And so that's another indictment against uh, evolution. And then number three, complex organs. Uh, the idea that, right, if you are a product of natural selection and all of our functions, right, and various appendages and body parts are, let's use the eye, for example. It, it, the creation of an eye, as you know, is a very complex organ. And so the idea that you would have a failed eye, an eye that didn't work, an eye that didn't work, and then suddenly an eye works, it doesn't make logical sense. Instead, at some point, right, complex organs like an eye, they either work or they don't. And if they don't work, then the law of natural selection should mean that we get rid of our eyes and we're just all blind. You see, you see the point in that? Those are just three quick points that he makes. Again, he's way more educated than I am about it, but that's helpful. The other thing that we need to talk about for a moment is 24-hour days. 
And so those who argue for the metaphorical view of six days point out that the Hebrew word for day is yom, and they're right, which often refers to as an extended period of time that is more than a literal 24-hour day. So when the Bible, the Old Testament uses the word day, sometimes it's talking about 24 hours, but it's also sometimes talking about a period of time that's indefinite. However, there are two reasons to me that Scripture gives that seem to support a literal interpretation. One, each is numbered. So there is a succession of days. In addition, each day is described as having a morning and an evening, which is the common vernacular, right, for a literal day, especially in the Jewish worldview. Second, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, affirms that God's work and rest are precedent for us. So his example explains why God's people have a seven-day week and a Sabbath day. And so if those aren't literal 24-hour period of times, then why should we follow that as an example? It doesn't logically make sense. And so those are two arguments for me of why in this passage, right, uh, that Yom is referring to 24 hours days. Some other key terms just to be familiar with. Um, number one, flood ge- geology, sometimes called neocatastrophism. This is the idea, hang with me here, that before the flood of Noah, you realize the Bible says it never rained on the earth. Instead, there was something called, and the word in Hebrew is firmament. So there was a water canopy that surrounded the earth. So obviously, where did all that moisture come from? Well, when God sent the flood, right, that canopy collapsed. Before then, right, the rain, right, the dew that came down at night and the springs that came up provided what rain provides for us now. And so the idea is, and I have a whole book on physics of this, it's called The Waters Above, that talks about the fact of where could all this water come from, right, that would cause a worldwide flood. The idea there is, is that catastrophism is what busted apart the continents, it's what compressed the layers of geology, right, and so that geological impact is significant. As you know, any builder, any contractors in here, what's the most destructive force to what you're trying to build? Water, right? It will destroy things every time. Fire, you, you, know, you rebuild. But water, it gets in something and it destroys it. The pressure is immense. And the weight of water, right, on the whole earth, right, caused severe, severe catastrophic damage uh, to the earth. And so that's one term that comes up. Remember when we talk about evolution, there's a difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution is the God-given ability for things to adapt to their environment. It's a part of the genius of God's creation macroevolution is Darwinian evolution that we're talking about. So when we talk about evolution, you just sometimes have to be clear on terms there. Number three, this is fascinating to me, right? There's what's called the teleological argument, and teleological is just a fancy word for purpose and design, which is more popularized now. You will hear it described as the intelligent design movement. So for instance, say that you had never seen a watch before, but you stumble across a watch. What is your assumption? There's a really smart guy who figured out how to make this watch. Your assumption is not, man, a bunch of molecules got together, right? And they all of a sudden formed, right, these little hands, and they synced up perfectly, with, right? You, you, that's, the point being is that anything that we see, we assume, right, there's an intelligent designer behind this item. And the more complex the item, the higher the intelligence, And so that's logic at work there. And so when we see the complexities of our world and its systems, it's only evident that there's an intelligence behind it. And then that's related to number four, a phrase called irreducible complexity. There's an author, a biochemist by the name of Michael Bay, 
not the uh, guy who blows stuff up in movies, all right? It's B-E-H-E, not B-A-E, or B-A-Y, Michael Bay. Uh, He's a biochemist, and he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. In that, he gives the example of the eye that I just gave other things, right? There's an irreducible complexity that if you get below, right, things don't function and they don't work. And so that's his argument. And then number five, another one that's popularized right now, and again, we're kind of into apologetics here a little bit, but it's the idea of fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that the gravitational force of Earth is exactly what it has to be so that we're not weighed down and so that we don't go floating off into space. The distance that the Earth is from the sun The fact that we are tilted at our axis, right, at exactly 23 degrees, and if it was tilted just a few degrees one or the other, most of the earth would be blazing too hot or freezing cold and uninhabitable. And so you can go all throughout creation and see examples of where things are perfectly aligned. Francis Collins, uh, he uh, wrote this and said this about that phenomena in his book, The Language of God. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce, and there would be no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Our universe is incredibly fine-tuned, and any honest scientist will tell you that. And then last but certainly not least is emotional intelligence. A quote from another theologian, naturalists reason that immaterial things such as emotions and intelligence are simply the result of impersonal, unfeeling, unintelligent matter. Yet this entire proposal defies logic. How can matter that does not feel create people who weep? How can matter that does not think create not only the physical organ of the brain, but the mental thoughts that accompany it? How can impersonal matter create a person with identity and personality? So the burden of proof is on the naturalist to explain the untenable, whereas the Christian simply states that our personal, passionate, infinitely brilliant God made us with bits of his glory in our hearts, minds, and personality. My point there is I think you have to have more faith in science than you do faith in God, right? To, to argue a lot of these points. It's pretty amazing when you begin to think about it. So I know that's a lot of information, and again, I was telling Brian earlier, I grew up in an era in which my home church, right, we're having these seminars, and like, you know, this was a big deal, this, this subject um, and, and this topic. And so, so what? Why does this matter? Well, application of the doctrine of creation. So let's talk about this, why this matters. Number one, this should cause us to continually worship and praise our creator. Just Genesis 1 alone gives us at least 14 things about God. In the same way artwork reveals something of the the nature of the artist, so our creation reveals the creator. God is the only God. God is Trinitarian. God is eternally uncaused. God is living. God is independent. God is transcendent. God is imminent. God is personal. God is powerful. God is beautiful. God is holy. God's word brings life. God is gracious. God is a sovereign king. Good theology should lead us to praise and worship every time. Good theology should lead us to doxology. Anybody love the hymns, right? When I survey the wondrous cross, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, right? All of creation 
It's testimony, right? And if I right, just reflect it all back to God in praise and wonder. How about how great thou art? O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then what does your soul do? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. Man, those words, right? They echo. I think about, I hear that every time, that thunder, right? I remember being a kid. I grew up on, in Illinois. We played baseball. It's like Sandlot in the movie. That's the way I grew up, right? And so, because it was all flat in Illinois, you could see the thunderstorm coming. You could feel it in the air. And I'd know by how far that storm off was. We, hey, guys, we got an inning and a half left. Let's go, right? So, I mean, we really, literally would, because you could do it. You could feel And I remember, every time we sing that song, I, I remember that thunder, just the power of watching those dark clouds and just thinking, man, Man, for all of our pride, for all the things that we try to control, how we have this illusion of we're in control of everything, we can't control the weather, can we? Still haven't figured that one out. Tumbling, it should lead us to all and worship at the power of God's creation. I'm about ready to sing. I better keep moving, y'all, all All right? Number two, we are free to appreciate, enjoy, savor, and give thanks for this world and everything in it. We allow our enjoyment of creation to lead us to honor the creator. So guess what? After Coffee House Theology, go get that ice cream and enjoy it. Because God said it was not just good, it's what? Very good, right? Those first warm days of May that we're about to get, we're all tired of this cold, right? Teasing us with spring stuff. Man, jump in that swimming pool, soak up those rays, and enjoy the created order that God has given us. And that moment, right, when you can actually stop and watch the sunset. We watch sunsets in my house. I'm the sunrise guy, but my wife will tell you she's never going to see a sunrise, right? She's sunset. Her favorite time on the beach is what? Like late afternoon until we see the stars. Because she wants to sleep in and she wants to go down there and watch the sunset and be there. And the day's cool, not when it's blazing hot. But man, watching that sunset over the ocean and those colors change by the second. Have you ever done that? until that sun just disappeared over the horizon. Like that, that, enjoy that. God created that for us to bear witness to his glory, for us to stand there and say, man, what an awesome God we serve. So enjoy it, appreciate it, savor it. Number three, we do scientific research to expand our knowledge of the universe because it enables us to discover how wise, powerful, and skillful God was in the work of creation. So if your kid wants to become a scientist, tell him to do it for the glory of God right? It all points back to him anyway. And so we shouldn't be afraid of science. We shouldn't be afraid of what we're going to discover because like I said earlier, right? We know God's natural creation and his, his revealed word. Those things are going to harmonize when it's all said and done. If we don't get it, then we don't get it. But, but God has it all in his hand. And number four, we use our creative abilities to glorify the creator as we create. Remember, we do asa, not barah, right? But we do asa, and we get to enjoy art and music and sports and writing and so much more. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. So I think Christians should create the greatest art. I think we should write the best songs. I think, right, when we play sports, we should give it our all. Why? Because God gave us legs that run and hands that paint, and minds that can invent melodies, right, and put words together poetically. Like, those are all ways that we do it for the creator. Again, the problem in our culture is, is we take people who are good at that, and we try to make them gods. They're not. They don't barah, right? 
They're simply using what God has put in them and around them to create something. But it's beautiful when it happens, and we should recognize it and call it out. Beauty, right, is one of those things that leads us. It's an echo, it's a clue, it's a fingerprint of God in our world. And then number five, we are humble before God and gracious to one another as we discover and explore God's creation. We really should work together with much less arrogance, much more humility, and a greater sense of cooperation and a common purpose as we explore these truths. One of the things that just burns me up as a pastor, right, is to watch Christians attack each other over some of these positions that are non-salvific. You know, there's time for a family conversation and to have all those talks, right? But as we explore these truths together, we need to be gracious to each other and set an example for the watching world and keep the focus where the focus needs to be. And I love this one, right? Number six, we use creation as the opportunity to point to the gospel. Yes, right? We teach our kids, we teach others, like God made that. That is amazing, right? That's an evident one. But when you begin to think about it, you begin to realize there are so many otherwise intelligent and people who resist the evidence of a creator. Why? Well, it's right there in Romans 1, right? For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Translation, the pride of the sinful human heart leads people I believe really smart, intelligent people to suppress the truth that God has put right before their very eyes and to deny that there's a creator. Do you know why? Because they want to be God. And so it's an awesome gospel opportunity, right, to say, hey, look at what God's put right in front of you. You can't deny it. There is a God, as I say often, and you are not him. And I love that the doctrine of creation, right, it sets the stage for the coming of Christ. God becomes a man who is our creator in his creation. I mean, never get over the awe of the incarnation, right? That when we're reading about Jesus, we're reading about the creator who is in his creation. You talk about imminent, right? A God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, it is mind-blowing. There is no God like our God. And then last but certainly not least, Number seven, we have hope because of creation. I love this statement, right? The Bible teaches that creation in general and human life in particular were made by God, belong to God, exist for God, are restless apart from God, and will return to God. But if you don't believe in the doctrine of creation, you will believe that you came from no one, you were alive on earth for nothing, and that when you die, you will go nowhere. And that's what generations of our young people are being led to believe. And you wonder why our world is hopeless. You wonder why suicide is at an all-time high. You wonder why there's so much despair and brokenness. Because if fundamentally that's what you believe is the big story at the end of the day, well, Bertrand Russell, he's an atheist philosopher, I give him credit for being honest, he calls this what? The firm foundation of unyielding despair. But we have a better story. We have a story to tell people of a God who creates, a God who gives us hope. And there's a little illustration that I love, again, just about our smallness and God's vastness. Teddy Roosevelt, close with this, right? Teddy Roosevelt, president of the United States, loved being outdoors. And so he and a friend of his, a guy by the name of William Beebe, they would routinely go outside at dinner and look up at the night sky. They'd find this faint little spot of light in the lower left-hand corner of Pegasus, the constellation, and recite the following. This is the spiral galaxy Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each one of them larger than our sun. 
And Roosevelt would pause and grin. He'd say to his friend, now I think we feel small enough. Let's go to bed. (laughs) Great perspective, isn't it? It's good to be reminded of how great God is and that yet he cares for each and every one of us. All right, I might have gotten fired up, Brian. We got like four minutes for questions. Probably not enough, but uh, what, what do we got? And our few verses of just as I am. Come on. Leads to it. Good theology leads to God. That's it. Amen. All right. Um, one, that, one that popped up actually pretty early said, is there any real significance that the universe was created ex nihilo and man from the dirt? Well, yeah, it's the distinction between creator and created. Creation. That's exactly right. Yeah, that that, again, even we were formed out of what God had created, right? The raw elements that he had put into place. And I always take it as kind of an echo, a free echo of incarnation, right? Because while we were created with special purposes, we are still creation, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's just a a beautiful echo, beautiful echo. Yeah, it's good. One of the questions was, is it better to be wanted or needed? I think you said that God didn't need us, but he wants us. I think that's a casting crowns lyric, isn't it? It may be. I yeah, don't know. I think it is. I think so. yeah, it's, 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 it's I'm more amazing. of a Petra guy myself. I'm, I'm so, well, so yeah, that's yeah. my era. I, it wasn't my era as opposed <laughs> to my era. Yeah, back when they asked me if I was you know, around when the Philistines. So <laughs> that's kind of rough. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. I'm not sure how the theology of that goes. Um, another question was, has anyone ever thought about the fact that Sabbath is the only commandment that dates all the way back to Adam? Hmm. Right, because it was it was in the creation that God rested. I think that's I think mm. that's a beautiful thing, and that's I think great it's great observation. And I think it's wild how little emphasis we put on Sabbath today. Mm-hmm. Right, you look back at Deuteronomy, it says, right, don't plow to the edge of your field, leave some for the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, the foreigner. Right, we plow over in, in our neighbor's field. Right, just a little bit. Yeah. Right, but God and yet from anxiety, people. stress, all those suicide, things, right? all, all, time these, high all these things that because are because we never stop. Yeah. Well, and, and we're told if you stop, you die. If you stop, you die. And yet, and yet, if you don't stop, you're, you die. you'll die. I've, I've kind of figured that. I argue that's my argument about exercise. Everybody <laughs> I know what exercise is, dies. That's a deadly thing. Deadly, deadly thing. Hence my non-athletic figure, we shall say. Um, a couple, couple questions on you know which of the six or which of the six views of creation are correct. Uh, you know some of the specific things. Yeah, there's not a correct answer. And I kind of, just in contrast, just kind of in contrast, you said you kind of grew up and this was the big controversy. I grew up in in Tullahoma, Tennessee. Uh, Tullahoma is the world's leading uh, aerospace and aeronautics research facility that's ever been built in mankind. It was built in in the 1950s, has been updated. Tullahoma was a town of 6,000 people in the 70s and 80s. It was the second most educated community in the country. There were more doctors in Tullahoma than in Nashville. There were more doctors in Tullahoma than in Memphis. So everybody I knew had a PhD in physics or electrical engineering, the entire town, or mechanical engineering. Everybody went to church. It was an incredibly strong Christian place. We never had talks about this stuff. And, and Benjamin and Michael will tell you in our home, I mean, we've ta- I'm sure we talk about it some, but this has never been something we, we've talked about. That one of the things is, is, the, is, like, when you project out 100 million years, it's like looking at me and looking at Jay and then telling me what's going on in Australia. <laughs> right? That's the scale. When you think about the scale, we're about two meters apart. And if you look at the scale, we've had this guy good deep science for about 50 years. And so if you scale 50 years to 100 million years, it's like you, me, and then going from what you know about us, tell me what's going on in Australia. 
And so you have to be really careful with these things. And you have to be really careful with science that extrapolates. Every, everybody, the scientists that I knew, there weren't arguments about creation and how old the earth was. The, the talk was what, what in God's revelation can we see that he gives us to be helpful, hmm. right? How can, we, how can we go explore the stars? I got to watch the very first separation tests of the solid rocket boosters on the space shuttle. Back in the 70s. I went to work with, that was my, you know, take your son to work day. That's pretty cool. I was like, wow. And the first ones, by the way, circled out and came back into the fuel tank and blew it up. To which a bunch of engineers went, oh. Right? And so we've designed it so the tank, so the little rockets go away from the space shuttle instead of coming back up and blowing it up. Yeah. But again, evidence of, of people yeah. right applying exactly. their God-given right. abilities exactly. to a problem well, exactly. using their creative capacities well, to solve and, that. And to get us to to get us to space, right? Reliably yeah. and that but that's all God given. And that was kind of the understanding I grew up under. Mm-hmm. Was this was all God. So there weren't debates about kind of, you know, Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I was I was pretty clear as I worked through this, I obviously Baptist faith and message, for instance, right? There's no statement about this because, again, people have various opinions and, and shades of grace. I think you're always looking for the argument that is more biblical. And so, you know, science, as we know, things change. We discover new things, right, and sure. where the evidence lies. So, obviously, I think the, the two at the top of that page are much more biblical, you know, than the others. I think, you know, that they are more... Um, uh, more plausible as far as within a biblical uh, uh, harmonizing of the biblical worldview and what we know of science. But to the point, we hold to those humbly, right? We hold to all of our positions in these things with humility, saying, here's what we're clear about. Here's what we do know. And that's where we, and what, what, a, what a great thought. Like, instead of using science to, like, debate with each other, let's use it to help people. Right. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty incredible community okay. that you grew up in. Well, let me tell you something. Those, those little wooden cars you build for Boy Scouts was a technology <laughs> show. We had representatives from GM and Ford down there. People had test tracks. Pinewood Derby. Pinewood Derby. Dude, it was a tech show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did that in RAs when I grew up. Anybody do RAs, right? Royal Ambassadors? Yeah. RAs. Old school Southern Baptist. Thank you very much. Yeah. But Good. yeah, those, those things, it was, a, it was a weird, wild That's place amazing. to grow up. Weird, wild place to grow up. Um, yeah, it said, uh, uh, interesting, man, let's see, what's, what's up with a black hole? I love the mysteries of God. Yeah, we don't know anything about that. It's, it's really cool. Benjamin, Benjamin went to one, a bunch of Benjamin's classmates, right? Princeton's won five of the last six Nobels in science. And so Benjamin took classes from some of the world's leading theoretical physicists. And it was fascinating to watch them kind of n- not know, mm. right? And, and not that they were, again, these are the most, these are literally, these guys and yeah. gals were but literally. But the humility. But the humility say, that they had was what really impressed know. me. Was, yeah. but, but there are things we do know, and so we, yeah. fe- we see this, and so we explain it this way. Yeah. But, wow. And there's probably somebody in this church who's an expert on all those things. That's one thing I That's learned. Right. I, I dropped, exactly. sometimes I'll drop little things in my sermons for some of you guys, and I dropped a thing about quantum physics, <laughs> talking about the post-resurrection body of Jesus. Lo and behold, I got an email from a guy in our church who said, I have a PhD in quantum physics. I was like, of course, right? And so we had a fantastic, he came in and lunch and learned with staff, all these things. Let me mention, speaking of resources, a couple of things. Um, they're on there again. Case for the Creator, Lee Strobel, um, the guy who did Case for Christ, has his own book where he's gone and interviewed a bunch of these scientists. So if you want a one-stop shop, uh, that's a pretty good one. Darwin's Black Box is the, the, uh, by the biochemist uh, that I talked about, Michael Bay. And then Darwin on Trial, Philip E. Johnson uh, is the lawyer uh, who took uh, Darwin's 
Darwinian evolution to task um, in that book uh, and give some really, really incredible talking points. So those are some, some great resources in addition to the theologies that deal with this. Yeah, there's tons of, tons of you know, Christian scientists that have written about yeah, the Yeah, I put a couple of uh, websites on there uh, for you as well. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, be careful, though, online, <laughs> what, what sources you read. Yeah. Um, be very careful about well, pr- that. Press it back against Scripture. Yes, always. Right. Everything. Always let Scripture Berean. speak. Yes. Always Good. let Scripture speak. That's fantastic tonight. Good. Thank you very much. I know it's an enormous amount of work, but thank you very it's much. Fun. Be- beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. Let's pray, pray and get home. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your Son that saves us. Uh, thankful for your Word. Thankful for your creation um, and all that we don't know. Um, and, 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 and that we are ignorant of these things. And so lead us in this way of ignorance, right, that brings us to humility and, and, and gratitude, that you do know more, and, and that your providence carries us, right? This is one more example of the way your providence should give us hope. And so, Father, as we leave here tonight, let us be changed. Let us be different than the people that came in because we've encountered your truth. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.